Hello, and thanks for stopping by for another episode of MFA Writers. Since our last episode, the podcast has celebrated its one-year anniversary. It's hard to believe, but the very first episode of MFA Writers came out on June 23rd of 2020. We didn't know when we started this project if anyone would listen or whether guests would be interested in sharing their stories, but the response has been beautiful and life-affirming. Today's episode will mark the 28th interview we've done since last June, and we're not stopping there. We'll be releasing a couple more episodes in July before we transition into season two, where you can expect more interviews with talented emerging writers who are each currently studying in one of the country's 300 plus creative writing programs. Thanks again for being a part of this, and here's to another great year. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. Feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from listeners. If you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Finally, as always, thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Aggie Stewart. Aggie is a Rhode Island-based writer going into her final semester in the Newport MFA program at Salve Regina University, where she focuses on creative nonfiction. Aggie has a BA and an MA in English literature and worked as a technical writer, business writer, and editor for many years before beginning work on her MFA. Today, she is going to read an excerpt from her memoir in progress, tentatively titled Double Vision. The night the Furies cut up with me, They had to change their tactics to get my attention. Until then, I'd been adept at turning a blind eye and deaf ear to their demands, rendering them invisible. Even after they succeeded, I tended to minimize, dismiss, reinterpret what they held out for me to see, to reckon with. I hadn't yet learned how to survive the looking without turning to stone or exploding into tiny grains of sand and dust. That came later, much later. Earlier that evening, when I walked into the seminar room, it looked as it always did, cold and sterile, yellowed by the overhead fluorescent lighting. I arrived to the graduate seminar on major literary critics by myself and saw my friend and fellow graduate assistant, Tim, talking and laughing with Jim, another graduate student, more of an acquaintance than a friend of mine. Tim grinned and reddened when he saw me, nodded a silent hello, then went back to his conversation with Jim. I'd grown used to Tim's glancing acknowledgement of me when we were with the men in the program, especially the male graduate assistants in the English department. We were good friends and confidants otherwise. Nearing the end of my third semester, I was well aware of the politics at play, although my footwork was never quite nimble enough to move fluidly around the shifting transactional alliances within the department. I got absorbed in ideas and learned to be wary of ego and personality, especially the charming, affable variety. What I'd learned didn't prevent me from being taken in by that type again and again. 
I set a copy of the presentation I would be giving that night on Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own on the table in front of me and sat down. Dr. Hager, the course instructor, had given me an extension on the presentation date. There was no turning back. The room felt warm. It didn't help that I had overdressed for the mild early November day, so unusual for Chicago that time of year. Under the table, I tapped the fingers of my left hand against my thigh while I blindly paged through the printout. Dr. Hager walked into the room and started talking. I looked over at him and heard words coming out of his mouth, but didn't track with what he was saying. Then he looked at me and I saw his mouth make more word shapes and understood that I should start speaking. I used the rehearsed voice I developed in high school when I delivered the readings at Sunday Mass before the priest read the gospel and gave his homily. The volume just right, the pace unrushed with well-timed pauses for emphasis, not a single verbal stumble. I heard myself lingering on the issue of women's economic independence and its connection to women's writing, a significant part of Wolfe's argument in the essay. I critiqued myself as I continued reading. Why am I harping on this? Move on. This is so cursory, not literary enough. My voice stopped when I turned over the last page. Words came from Dr. Hager. I heard my voice again. Then words came from students and more words came from me. As if a spotlight were trained on me, I didn't see distinct faces, only heard the voices of other students in the room speaking. Everyone polite, professional. As another student started to present, the spotlight shifted and I sat back, relieved behind my mask, looking but not seeing or hearing anything being said for the rest of class. Tim stopped at my place as I packed up at the end of the night. You did well, he said. You held court. His grin looked like a smirk. I did? I couldn't tell, I replied. My stomach clenched and I looked away from his face while I finished packing my knapsack. Absolutely, that Sally Forth opening was deceiving, he said. I tried to see his face from my peripheral vision. I couldn't tell if he was joking. Hmm, well, okay, thanks, I said as I slung my knapsack over my shoulder and draped my coat over the opposite arm. You don't have to wait for me. I'm going to stop in the ladies' room before I head out. Coming out of a stall a few minutes later, I ran into another professor, Dr. Clark, a cautious feminist. She asked what I had kept me in the department so late. Major critics meets on Tuesday night. I give a presentation on Wolf's A Room of One's Own tonight. You think Wolf is a major critic? She asked me. Her face contorted with skepticism and challenge, maybe interest. The question caught me completely off guard. I thought she would be more sympathetic toward my attempt to show an underappreciated woman novelist and critic in a different light. The weight of my knapsack pulled harder on my shoulder. I stammered some response. All I remember was how lame it sounded. Dr. Clark made a bland reply and put a thoughtful look on her face. I wished her a good night and left. Back at my apartment, alone and restless, I tried to block out thoughts about the evening that teemed and churned in my head. I had failed. It didn't matter what anyone else said to the contrary. Had I given the presentation the year before, I would have chain-smoked to soothe and numb myself. I'd almost bought a pack on the way home and had chastised myself for the impulse. That voice joined the chorus of recriminations about the superficial, off-the-mark case I'd made about the importance of Wolf's economic argument. As the scene in class that night replayed over and over, something welled inside of me. I felt a disembodied, annihilating presence come into the room. Inside, I go still, listening. My eyes are open, but may as well be closed. A hard, hot lump rises in my throat, 
Pressure fills my ears. My breath constricts. The rest of my body tightens, then goes rigid. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, races through my mind, shuts down the chorus. I want to lose consciousness. I had spoken and done myself in. I see an image of myself hunched in a squatting position with my face buried in my arms. The angry energy of the presence bears down on me. Time passes. Thanks so much for reading that. And thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jared. Yeah, of course. That was really great. And and I'm really excited to talk to you about writing nonfiction, specifically memoir. I, I know this project you read is from a memoir in progress. And you told me that it's a braided narrative that weaves together two storylines and perspectives. So which storyline is this excerpt from? And, and what is the other one that we didn't get to here? Yeah, so this, the excerpt I read from, it's uh, the adult perspective on my childhood and young adulthood experience. So that's one braid. And then the other braid is uh, more more present, ten, you know, more in the present time, um, dealing with about the year before to a few years after my mom passed. So what made you want to structure the memoir this way? Well, I'd really been grappling with structure. Um, and one of the things that I, I've been working on really intensely for the last year was was figuring out really what the story was that I was trying to tell, because I have so much material, so much situation that I'm dealing with. And so it's really been a journey for me, like honing in on exactly what it is I'm, tr- I'm trying to, to talk about, what, what message it is I'm, I'm trying to give through the, the story. So it's only been rather recently that I've gotten gotten a lot of that worked out. And so what a braided narrative gives me is the ability to use a present story, this, you know, dealing with my, my mother's passing, you know, her, um, uh, her, her worsening health um, and, you know, just everything that that kind of churned up, not just for my, for me, but for the rest of the family um, and then in the, the years uh, following, following her death. So I could tell that story, but that story only makes sense when, when a reader would understand like what was behind it. So that's what the other braid gives me the opportunity to do is to show what's behind, what's behind that. So you said you've been like really working on structure and trying to figure out the best way uh, to tell this story is this something you're thinking about before you start writing? Like how, how best can I structure this? Or is it something that you're tinkering with and trying out different things and seeing what feels right and then going from there? Yeah, definitely the latter. I, I honestly, structure was, um, was really like a conundrum for me because again, I, I, you know, I was really struggling with, well, do I tell the story from the beginning? And then it's just, it just seemed like it would be so, um, I don't know, like boring to write even because it would just be like event, 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 event and without without purpose. So really to get to the structure, I had to really understand what the message was that I was trying to tell, you know, trying to give and think about what the best container was for for that for that message and how to convey that again, because there's so so much going on. I feel like the story is so multivalent that. I needed a, a, a structure that could, could hold that. So when you happen upon that structure, is it like this moment of, oh, this is it. I finally found it. Or is it more fluid throughout the process of writing? 
Uh, it was not fluid. I really have spent the better part of a year just like writing scenes and, and making a lot of false starts, like a lot, a lot of false starts. And it remains to be seen whether this structure is really is really the right one. Right now, it feels it feels right because what it allows me to do, it limits what I can include. And that's really good because that was a big part of the uh, problem that I was struggling with was that I had too much and I didn't know really what to cut. This starts to really um, give me a tighter lens through which I can make my scene selections. That's super interesting. And, you know, one thing that I've really been working on is like trying to embrace false starts. Like, like befriend the false start. Yeah. They're okay, right? I mean, there was a, a, there have been times when I'm writing stories and I make a couple of false starts. I, I start writing a certain way. I don't feel that energy. It's not working and I, and I want to give up. But what I've found is that if I just keep going yeah. and keep going, eventually something will click and I'll feel that energy in that start and that'll carry me through the writing. Um, yeah, yeah. So is, is that something that, that you're working on as well? Yeah, for sure. And this is where feedback has been really, really helpful to me too, because, you know, I, I try different things, you know, I try mm -hmm. different starts, different ways of organizing the material, presenting it, playing around with point of view and, and verb tense and all of that. And I, you know, and then I'd show it, I'd workshop it and I'd get feedback that was really helpful about what was working and what wasn't. And then just kind of spinning for a while too. And actually, it was one of my, my mentors who suggested that maybe I take a break from the long form for a while and, and write an essay that dealt with some of the material, but in a more limited fashion. And that was a braided essay. <laughs> it had three, three different strands. Um, but it was really helpful to do that because I saw exactly how the braid works and, and where and where the overlaps needed to be. And I could begin to see what was missing from the long form. I have a print hanging above my writing desk. That's, that's just a ship kind of lost at sea during a storm. <laughs> and, and so whenever, anytime I'm starting a new story, I, I will just stare at that and be like, okay, this is yeah. where I'm at. This is the beginning of the story. It's going to, I'm going to feel lost. Um, but that's okay. But, yeah. but you're right. Having the, people to give you feedback helps a lot because if you're just trying to do it on your own, yeah. it can get really frustrating. So um, that, that's definitely one of the benefits of these programs, right? Yeah, for sure. Especially too, when the story that I'm trying to tell, it's, it's pretty complex. Again, there are a lot mm. of, a lot of pieces to it uh, and, it, and it spans a, you know, a significant period of time. Um, and so honing it, <laughs> Yeah, it was, was really has been quite a challenge, but but a really important part of the process. And, you know, this this memoir is about some traumatic events in your family's history. It's not only about your mother's passing, but it's also about the murder of your mother's sister, which occurred while your mother was pregnant with you. What made you want to write about this event? Or was it something that you felt like you just needed to write about? Uh, well, definitely the latter. I, I really, you know, I felt like what my family had been through was, was pretty, pretty extraordinary. At least it felt that way to me. Um, and quite honestly, it wasn't until she was actively dying in that last year that I really began to appreciate the fact that she was pregnant with me when her sister was, was killed. Mm. Um, and that was never talked about Jared 
never talked about. I mean, there are so many things that weren't talked about, so many things. And yet there was all this behavior, you know, um, getting acted out. So, you, you know, you say that it wasn't talked about. So when did you find out about this? And was this something that you immediately started trying to write about or or was it something you, you just didn't touch for a while? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I had been trying to work with it in other forms. So I really, my desire to write creatively started out, I mean, I started out as a fiction writer and a, as a poet. And I was always dealing, I think, with, with this content, but never to, quite to my satisfaction. And about 10 years ago, I was given an opportunity to write about um, what it was like growing up with an alcoholic father. And so as I started to write that, like all of, all of these scenes and like really vivid memories uh, were coming back. And, and as I was writing that essay, I felt so free. <laughs> I felt like I could do things in nonfiction that I was suppressing in certainly in fiction, maybe not so much in poetry In poetry, it was always so cloaked, you know? Um, and I just, and I think I just really needed to see it myself. I needed to like see it in, literally in black and white in front of me. That's so interesting because, you know, I write fiction. Um, I have a good friend in the program who writes nonfiction and we, when we sometimes argue about which one is more freeing and I yeah. say, how could you say that fiction is less freeing? You can literally <laughs> write whatever you want, but she, but she's adamant that, uh, nonfiction makes her feel freer to write certain things. And so that's super interesting to hear that you had like a similar experience. I wonder why that is. Yeah, well, I think for this particular story, it may not be true universally, you know, for everyone. But for me, like this story was a real barrier to writing other works of fiction and, and other poetry. So I have felt for the longest time that I just need to get this out. I really I need to see it like really clearly and uh, appreciate it myself <laughs> uh, so that I can go on and do other things. Yeah. I, there are, I have a number of projects that I'd, I'd like to get back to, other projects that, you know, I have, is, you know, since I've been in the program formulated. And so this is something I hear time and time again from writers who are writing um, traumatic narratives. Yeah. Right. It's just something that I had to get out so that I could move on to other projects. And yeah. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about trauma narratives in general. One thing you told me that you think about is not only how to sequence events, but also control the narrative distance in order to manage emotional content. Yeah. Yeah. Its role in the story and its impact on the reader. Can, can you tell us a bit more about that and how you've utilized these strategies when working on this project? Sure. Well, you know, because um, I knew that there was so much dark material, so much heavy material in what I was working with, um, I really needed models or I needed to look at other writers who had dealt with similarly difficult, dark and, and heavy content to see how they they worked with the emotional content. Because as I as I think about it and as I experience it in my own work and in the work of these other writers, these traumatic events, they have the emotions are embedded in them. They just are. You know, of course, there are experience of them. But even if we were to talk about just categories of, of traumatic experiences, sexual abuse, for instance, domestic violence, community violence, murder, you know, we have these visceral responses, right? I mean, we, we have a, 
sort of a, uh, an implicit understanding of, of the emotions because mm. of their, because of the impact that they have on, mm-hmm. on, on those involved. Um, and so knowing that it's, I think it's really important for us to be able to look at these events, uh, without turning away and, and how, how as writers do we do that? How do we say, yeah, the, these are, these are, these are real things that people experience, not just, you know, an artist. I mean, this is, this is common humanity, you know? Right. So how do we present these stories artfully so that what happens get in the story is elevated, you know? So there is this, a transcendent quality to it without that transcendent sacrificing um, the imminence of the experience and the imminence of the emotions. Yeah. Well, I think that's really beautifully put. And I just really admire writers who are able to take these events and these situations in their lives that are so dark and turn them into something beautiful in writing. I'm just, I just admire yeah. it so much. So yeah. thanks for sharing all of yeah. this with us. And another thing that you mentioned was um, how narrative pacing is something we talk a lot about in writing, but emotional pacing is not something we talk about a lot, but that is really important in writing these narratives. So maybe you could talk a, a little bit about that and maybe how that thinking about emotional pacing affected other aspects of the story? Yeah, great question. Really great question. Um, So yeah, when I was um, thinking just about what I was trying to work with and looking at the craft literature, there was so, there's, as you know, I mean, narrative pacing, it's a huge topic in fiction, nonfiction, lots and lots out there. But when I was grappling with how to modulate the emotional content in, in my work, that phrase, emotional pacing, came to mind. And so I, I Googled it, and I really found very little. I, just, the, just one reference, uh, Donald Mass uh, refers to it in a very brief article. But the way he thinks about it, it's really, it's more a part of narrative pacing. It has more to do with sort of the gear shifting. Um, it has more to do with how a character in the story understands something that has happened, an event that's happened. Um, and that's really, that's not really what I was talking about. I wasn't talking about something that was mechanistic. I was talking about something that was really, again, like very multivalent, permeating the whole story. And so went not finding much, I thought, well, gee, is there really a there there? And, and yet I knew, like intuitively, I just in my gut, I knew that there was something to this. And so I took a look at a number of, of trauma narratives and specifically uh, trauma narratives of uh, familial trauma and childhood familial trauma, because there that's a really unique kind of category of of story, and so I, I read many 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 of them, um, and just really taking a very close look at what the writers were doing, at how they were doing it, how they were structuring it, how they were using various narrative techniques to. Um, and I didn't know this when I started out, but they were using narrative techniques to control the, the distance, the narrative distance between the narrator and the events being narrated. And so um, I took a really close look at four books. I only included three in my, my theses. Um, was Mary, Mary Carr's The Liar's Club, Jerry Harjo's Crazy Brave, and Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Um, yeah, I mean, like the three great, great books. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like just masters. But I had to look at yeah. masters, right? Yeah. Because they and masters who were breaking ground. Each of them, their work broke ground. It seems, in, in my my opinion, 
And so what I discovered in taking a really close look at their work is that they were very intentional about the structure that they ultimately used. Um, and that there was a relationship between the structure, the tone, so in other words, their, their attitude towards their, their subject matter, and the message that they were looking to deliver. Everything that they did, every narrative technique that they used was working with these other structural elements. And, and again, very, a very intentional way. So once I feel like they, they knew what their structure was, or once I could see what their structure was and, and you know, ascertain the, the message they were trying to, to deliver and what their attitude was toward their subject, then I could start to take a close look at the techniques that they were, like how they were actually laying the narrative out, how they were laying out these, these emotionally laden events and how, how they did, and they all did it differently. And I think what I, the conclusion I came to was that, you know, that piece of the writing is very, very, very individual, like every, every, all these elements, very individualistic, right? And there's no formulaic way of doing it but whether a writer is doing it knowingly or just kind of following their gut about it, they're making choices, very, very definite choices about how to portray certain events, certain emotional, emotionally and laden events in the story. Well, if you haven't already, you should write a craft essay about this uh, and, and try to get it published because it's it's super interesting. And, you know, you mentioned a couple of times like, working on this through intuition or by gut feeling, it does feel like the kind of thing that's hard to explain or yeah. hone or practice. It's, it's slippery. It's, it's really, yeah. really, really slippery, but I was really um, taken by how consistently the, each writer was using the kinds of techniques they were using. It wasn't right. kind of like a one and done in this chapter and like onto something else. And right. they were using the, these techniques like throughout you know, you're you're working on this memoir now as a student in an MFA program, but you had a bit of a winding road to the Newport MFA. Can you tell us a bit about your earlier literary life and how you ended up in the MFA program now? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I, years of offense straddling, actually reading and, and writing to this day, I say they saved my life. You know, I was a journaler from, you know, a teenager and Reading literature um, helped me understand emotions, you know, and helped me understand my own emotions at times, too, in ways that I, I just wasn't, it wasn't possible, you know, within the, the family uh, I, I grew up with. Um, and so I majored in, in literature as an undergrad uh, with the intention of writing. I mean, that was my, you know, my goal from the get-go was, was to be a creative writer. And after undergrad, I took some time off just to kind of sort through, you know, the experience, decide like what, I, how I wanted to go forward, still writing the whole time. And so I, you know, I joined writing groups, you know, when I could, and again, was writing primarily poetry, prose poems, uh, some fiction at that time was mostly poetry and, and, uh, and actually one act plays because I've always been interested in, in theater. So I was doing all that. And then knew that I, I wanted to go back into an in-depth study of literature, that I felt like that was the, the best way for me to really learn my craft, to learn how to learn how to write. After all, you know, all the really, all the people that I admired, they didn't go to MFA programs. They, mm -hmm. they read, you know, right. they read and they wrote and they shared their work with other people. And, 
they did all kinds of things besides an academic program, but um, I, I needed the structure of an academic program. So I, this was in the, the 1980s, in the mid-1980s. At that time, MFA programs, there were some, but I, I, I was really feeling very, very vulnerable hmm. um, about, about going into a program like that. So I, I, you know, I knew academia, I, you know, being an academic, doing academic work was like putting on an old shoe, you know? And so I started into a, a PhD program and it, like from the get go, I think I just knew I was in the wrong place. And at the time, I thought it was just the wrong program for me, but it really it was academia itself that was wrong for me. So I got as far as my master's. I uh, left the program with a few courses toward my PhD, and then I, I left and I, you know, had to make a living. So looked at my skill set. Publishing was like a perfect fit for this kinds of skills that I had, my personality. Um, so I started doing doing editorial work and still trying to write on my own finding writing mm-hmm. groups, taking classes, workshops, things like that. And that went on for like a long time. About 2009 and 2011, I went to Tin House, the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop. I went the first time for fiction and the second time for nonfiction. And when I went the second time for nonfiction, I had the great good fortune to work with Maggie Nelson, who like amazing. I adore her. I mean, I adored <laughs> her work. Yeah. <laughs> And I just adore her as a teacher. She's a phenomenal teacher. And so we had a lot of conversations during that week. And she said, Aggie, you know, because and I couldn't at that time, like, up and move to someplace that had a residential program. She's like, why don't you think about a low res program? Um, But so it was still, you know, some time I was still on that fence. Like, do I want to be, I I think I was just afraid, basically. (laughs) Um, So it took me a while. And then about five years ago, a friend of mine went through the Goddard program, Lores program, um, and we talked a lot about her experience there. And then she knew that um, Ann Hood was beginning the Newport program at Salve. She said, Aggie, I think you should check this out. This looks like it's going to be a really good program. Um, I think you should check this out. So I did. I, I went and talked to Ann and Jen McClenahan, who are the, uh, who's the administrative director of the program, uh, met some of the faculty, really, really liked what they had to say. At the time, I had other things going on. I was still doing other writing. I was writing a, a book on yoga for healthcare practitioners. Uh, it was another part of my life. Um, but as soon as that book was finished, um, I approached Anne again, and we had another conversation. And I knew that this was the story that I'm working on now is what I wanted to work on. I knew it was sensitive, and I, I needed to know that I was going to be in the right place with the right faculty to um work with this content. So after talking with her again, I talked with a, a number of the faculty, told them what I was working on and just felt a, a high degree of confidence that it would be the right place for me to be. That's great. And and I personally believe, and I say this all the time, that if I'd have gone into the MFA program 10 years ago, I wouldn't be nearly as good of a writer or student as I am now in yeah. the MFA program. So is that something that you feel as well? Are you seeing like these earlier life experiences influencing your work? And do you think your work is better for it? No question. No question about it. First of all, perspective, right? Just perspective and healing time. Yeah, absolutely. But then because I was doing, you know, writing and editorial work for so many years, I just, I have the discipline of writing. Like it's, it's not, it's very easy for me to keep a schedule, you know, just like sit down and do my work. So I, and I appreciate having, having those skills and having that discipline. 
You mentioned having the time to heal. I was going to ask about this because we've talked a bit about narrative and emotional distance in writing, but how important is temporal distance in writing about trauma? Like how important is it to have that perspective and have that time between the event and when you're actually writing about it? Yeah. You know, it's a, another really great question, Jared, and I, and I think it's a different for everyone, and I think it's different depending on what the experience was. And in my case, uh, because it was so complicated, so complex, you know, it took me a long time to get perspective, and that's really what this the my memoirs about. It's about like how did I how did I resolve what was double vision for me, like this very split way of seeing myself, my parents, my siblings, the situation we grew up in. Well, I I want to continue talking about the memoir, but I also want to bring the Newport MFA into the conversation a bit. The program is at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. As we've said, it began in 2018. It's a two-year low residency program that offers tracks in fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and historical fiction. This seems like a really interesting program. So I have a lot of questions I want to ask about, but Let's start with a cross-genre workshop that you told me about that you said had a great impact on the crafting of your memoir. Can you tell us about that class? Yeah, I I love it. It's one of my favorite workshops during residency. And I remember when I went to talk to Anne the second time, um, you know, I told her that that I worked in different genres and that I realized I'd been writing about the same thing pretty much across genres. And she's like, oh, hey, that's so interesting. She said, we do this cross-genre workshop. And it's an opportunity for all the students in the program to come together. And it's an opportunity for writers to share across genres to share how they were approached, like, say, a prompt or a situation, uh, but from their genre perspective, um, which I just thought was so interesting. Um, and we, we talk a lot about, like, what is the right genre container, if you will, for a particular story? You know, um, I've heard many of my friends. In fact, I was just talking with a friend of mine the other day who started in fiction, went to nonfiction, is now in poetry. And she's she was trying to write the same story in each of those genres. And it wasn't working in fiction, wasn't working in nonfiction. And for her, it's working beautifully in poetry. And I had a very similar experience. I've been trying to work with it in fiction, in poetry, just wasn't wasn't really working. Um, nonfiction turned out to be the right, the right container. So that, that workshop is an opportunity to sort of test out material that we're working with, you know, in different, in different forms. Well, I think these kinds of craft focused classes can be really beneficial for writers, but not all programs offer them. So for those of us who don't get to take a class like this, what were some of the biggest takeaways that you had from the workshop that have affected your writing process and the crafting of your memoir? You know, I think taking taking risks, actually taking you know a risk in and in working inside another genre, which mean may mean letting go and looking at how how it may be possible to blend genres. So that's something else I've really been interested in too is blending genres and and how to do that, how to do it you know elegantly, um, so that it, the the shift in genres is serving the storytelling. It's not about showcasing one's writing ability. You know, we talked earlier about false starts. It's a lot easier for me to say, you know, embrace false starts when I'm a short story writer. A false start's usually two pages. But if you're writing a novel or a memoir, a false start could be, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 pages, right? Well, I'll tell you, just yesterday, 
Mary Carr posted something on her Facebook page. She apparently is working on a new memoir, yay. <laughs> but she, for three years, has been working. She's got 150 pages. Just realized the other day she has to toss them. She had to toss them all. But she said, so she's got zero pages, but she's much further along in the writing. I, I was really moved by that. And I just yeah. thought, my God, that's great. And she said, 30 years ago, she wouldn't have felt that way. 30 years yeah. ago, that was completely terrifying to her. Yeah, that really, it takes a high amount of skill and confidence and perspective, I think, yeah. to be able to say, I have 150 pages, with, which, listen, it's Mary Carr. I bet those 150 pages are pretty dang good, right? Yeah, how about it? How about it? Yeah. But for her to be able to say, these can be great, it has to be written this other way. Wow. Yeah. That, that is really, that's really yeah. powerful stuff. It's a great model. It's a, it's great modeling. You know, it inspires courage, I think. So for any listeners who don't know how the low residency thing works, mm -hmm. students in the MFA program attend periodic in-person residencies, meaning you're on campus taking classes and attending events. But then outside of those residencies, you can live at home, wherever that is, and work with faculty members remotely. So what is the overall structure of the Newport MFA like? Yeah, I mean, it follows pretty much the model you just described. So we meet uh, we meet together in person twice a year, January and June, um, for 10 days. And th those 10 days include a genre-based work workshop, so whatever genre one has declared, um, and then the cross-genre. Those are, and we do those, um, we do the cross-genre in the morning and the, non and the genre workshop in the afternoon. And then we have various craft talks and readings either earlier in the morning or later in the afternoon in the evenings so that, I mean, we, we are going often from like, you know, nine in the morning until like nine at night. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not a grind. It's really not. I mean, there's the energy is so high. Uh, the content is so stimulating and um, inspiring that it's like, it's easy to stay engaged. A 12 hour day. That's it's a long time to stay engaged. So what kinds of how do they usually structure that 12 hour day? Do you have breaks in the middle? Are you mixing and matching different activities to try to stay fresh? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So we have, a, you know, we always have a lunch break and a dinner break. Um, I think a break in the afternoon. Uh, some of the morning events are optional. They're they're more some of the social kinds of events, social gatherings. You know, I have to say the, the directors really do, a, I think, a great job of putting the schedule together so that people aren't burning out. You know, it's, again, paced <laughs> really, really well. You know, so, um, so th there are those breaks that, that we can step back, get refreshed, come back in, get a download of, you know, either creative work or craft work, doing our own generative work because there's a, you know, a generative component. Often, well, certainly in the cross genre, and then uh, often in the uh, genre, individual genre workshops as well. So you're you have some like dedicated writing time. You have daily workshops. It sounds like there are craft lectures, but I also read on the website that sometimes they will have exploratory contact with literary agents or editors and publishers. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So yeah, that's, those are uh, some of the, the, uh, the other events. Uh, so yeah, we'll have either publishers come in and talk about the publishing business and, you know, or agents coming in. We've had an agent come in uh, two different residencies that I've been, that I've attended so far. And it's an opportunity for us to practice pitching, like putting a pitch together and, and actually giving it. 
and then getting feedback from the agent on on how it went, which, you know, how invaluable is that? Yeah, really. That's wonderful. And so for students who are not from Newport, Rhode Island, they're, they're spending 12 hours on campus. Is there time to explore Newport as well? Uh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, we're, we're artists, so the crowd often is a, a late night crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, the, and Newport's such a great place. I mean, there's so much to do. Great restaurants, music, venues. Um, yeah, just all kinds of things. And then the program also builds in other kinds of social events. So um, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I've only been at one in-person residency. Uh, but And that was January before lockdown happened. Um, and one of the social events we did as a, as a group was we took a, a boat ride through the bay, which, you know, it does, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's Narragansett Bay. It's like such a beautiful place. And even in the wintertime, um, there were seals migrating, you know, were seals in the area. So we went seal watching and yeah, it was just really fabulous. That sounds great. Well, one of the more unique things about the Newport MFA is that there is also the option to do one January residency in Havana, Cuba. Do you know anyone who has done this and what their experience has been like? Yeah, several of my friends have have gone. Um, And again, um, because of the pandemic, since I've been in the program, they've only been able to go just that one time. And it was that January, you know, before lockdown happened. But what they related of their experience was was phenomenal. So the residency in Cuba is set up very much like the residency in Newport. So that you know there's a there there are generative workshops or you know critiques going on. Um, there's more time spent actually generating new material. You know, and then it's a really deep dive into the into the Cuban culture, which has uh, as you know of an incredibly rich you know literary tradition. Right. I saw, I think I saw on the website that one of the events they usually do is they visit uh, Hemingway's house yeah. in, in Havana, which would be really cool to see. Yeah. And the same, you know, with Graham Greene, you know, he, he was at the Hotel Santiago. So wow. you know, where he wrote our, our man in Havana. So will you get the chance to go? Yeah. So the great thing about the, um, the Cuba residency is that it's open to, uh, to alums, you know, because we've had, you know, because of, again, the pandemic, we've been online so much and I graduate next January. So I really don't want to be away for that, but I, I knew I had the option to go after graduation. So I'm absolutely going to go for sure. There's no question in my mind. It's a, it's more a question of when, uh, and probably not 2022, but probably 2023. And, you know, I, I'll mention, too, that that, uh, that Cuba residency is open to non-Newport students. Oh, wow. So any student or writer who, who wants to do that residency week in Cuba with, with the Newport folks is welcome to come. It sounds amazing. Uh, it sounds really like an amazing experience. But I, I have to ask, do you have a sense of how much it costs to, to go to this residency? Yeah, so it's the cost of tuition um, plus a surcharge. And the last time the residency happened, that surcharge was $3,600. And, and then you pay your uh, airfare, but you don't have to work. You don't pay additional room and board. You don't pay for meals that are provided through where you're boarding. Um, but any like any um, restaurants that you might go out to, any bars you might go out to um, would be at your own on your own dime. Right. So as I mentioned earlier, 
when not in a residency, students are working remotely from wherever they live. What do these non-residency periods look like for students in the Newport MFA? Yeah, well, the the one of the value and benefits of doing a, a low residency program is that we can stay in our lives, both locationally and then if you know we're working, whatever work we're doing. So you know, it it means that we're working. You know, we have to be again disciplined to to get our work done. So uh, we have monthly packets that are due. We have four packets uh, in Newport, four packets that are due over the course of the semester, um, and. During the first two semesters, those packets are a combination of, we call them annotations. They're um, they're responses to critical craft-based work um, and then creative work. The balance is is creative work. Uh, And we can turn in up to 6,500 words if we're working in prose. So, yeah, so, you know, it's an opportunity to get, you know, a sizable amount of work done over a four-month period. So there are those four packets, and then there we always have a, a packet due for residency. So we have to submit something for our, our genre workshop as well. So we wind up doing like five five packets over the course of, of the term. So those are the first two years. And then the third term, we, we work on our critical theses. They encourage us to to finish within a couple of um, a couple of packets, so like two or so. I took three because I kind of went overboard <laughs> with mine. Um, but they the expectation is that that's the primary focus of that third uh, semester. But they also want us to be working on our creative work as well. So t- tell us a little bit more about that critical theses project. Yeah. So. Um, it's a critical paper, so it's a more academically oriented paper, um, or it can be, I, I should say, um, it can be that. Uh, we have some options. We have three different options that we can use. Uh, so one is doing a more academically oriented uh, craft paper where we're looking at some element of craft, analyzing work, talking about how that element of craft is you know, utilized in, in the works we looked at. So that's one way. Uh, we can also interview writers uh, around, again, around some element of craft. So, an, um, you know, uh, an interview that may even be publishable can come come out of that. Then the third option is to do some kind of community-based project where you're going out and teaching and then writing up the experience of what it was like to to do that within a community. And then you also mentioned these packets that you're doing each semester that have creative work um, as part of them. Is Is that creative work in those packets part of your thesis at the end, your creative thesis at the end of the program usually, or can it be like whatever you want to work on essentially? Yeah, it it really depends. And I think it really, you know, it's very individual that way. Um, I know that was my intention going in that I, you know, was going to develop work that I could use in my uh, creative thesis. But I know for some people, that's not the case. They, they've worked on some things, you know, in their monthly packets, and then they do something different. So I think it really depends on the student and and like where they've gone, you know, and their development as a writer over the course of the program. I think it's really has everything to do with that. And so when you're in a non-residency period and you're working from home on these packets, are you working closely with a faculty member during this time? Yeah, you know, it, it really, it depends. You know, we build a relationship with, with our mentors. And I think, again, it's very individual to the student. 
I might personally, I'm, I am really used to working very independently. So, you know, I had, have had minimal contact, um, usually once a month, you know, after I've turned in a packet and I get feedback, then I'll have, you know, some conversation by phone or video conference, you know, with, with a mentor, but, you know, there's email exchange that's going on in between. So if there is a need to talk about something, a sound, you know, need for a sounding board or just whatever, whatever the impulse would be to interact, uh, you know, that can happen. And so how do they determine who your mentor will be? And is it the same mentor for the whole time you're in the program or is that changing throughout the program? It changes. The, well, it changes in every every semester. But for the first three semesters, we're assigned a mentor to work with us. And then for our fourth semester, we can choose. Well, we can we can say who what our preferences are. Okay. <laughs> and they try to honor our preferences. But I'll, I'll tell you, I have not had I've had a great experience with each of the the mentors I've worked with in the Newport program. So, in the way selection happens, those first three semesters, that is the sixty four thousand dollar question from a student's perspective. <laughs> so, but I'm sure there's lots of conversation amongst the faculty about you know who's doing what skills that different people need to work. I, I, I'm imagining, I don't know that for a fact though. So there are four different semesters. So there's potential for to have four different mentors uh, over the course of the program. To me, that sounds like a pretty good opportunity to get different viewpoints, different sets of eyes on your work. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because each mentor brings their own lens, right? And their own skill set to you know, to the exchange. And so, yeah, it's been really valuable for me to work with different people and to get uh, a different perspective on the kinds of things I'm doing. And for instance, the semester that I worked with a mentor who said, Aggie, maybe you just need to take a step back from the long form and do an S like that was, I mean, at first I'm like, no, I can't do that. You know, no, (laughs) I must just keep soldiering on. And then I just laughed at myself about a week or two after that and, and decided I, I'd give the essay. And then I loved working on the essay. I loved it. It was, and it was, the, I mean, I learned so much from doing that. I was so grateful that she really was encouraging me to do that. So things like that happen. Well, that all sounds wonderful. And before we go, I want to give you a last word here. If there's anything we missed or um, any advice you have for listeners. Yeah. I, I'd say if you're considering a low-res program, there are so many benefits to doing it. And you have to really know yourself well to, to do that because you, you have to really, I think, know how to work very independently, you know, and be very self-starting so that you, you actually do get your work done and you're, you're working at a, you know, at a pretty high skill level. Well, Aggie, uh, I have really, really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to stop in. Well, and Jared, I really enjoyed talking with you too. This has been great. I'm really happy to know you. I'm happy to know about your podcast and eager to follow you and see who else you bring on and where you go. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.